Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 2nd, 2018, and this is episode 2323 of the Survival Podcast. You guys know me, I'm weird with numeric patterns, so I like it when something like that happens, 2323. It is November the 2nd, and I want to apologize for not kicking you guys in the ass yesterday. I'm going to do it today to make up for it. Why? You know why. Tick tock, tick tock. November. There's too much left in the year. I hope like hell that every single one of you guys is working like crazy to build more independence and liberty and self-sufficiency and self-reliance into your life. Because if you're not, life is pushing you around and pushing you backward. You have to fight for every bit of additional freedom you get in your life, whether it be financial, uh, whether it be based on business, whether it be based on self-sufficiency, whether it be based on time and lifestyle management, no matter what it is. If you're not fighting for it since somebody else designed these systems to make it work for the everyday person that doesn't mind being controlled, the amount of control and dependence in your life is growing. It's your choice. Tick freaking talk, folks. Tick freaking talk. Because I'm going to be honest with you. We're going to hit Thanksgiving, and even me, I kind of go into coasting mode throughout the rest of the year. From Thanksgiving on through New Year's, it's it's kind of a coast for me. I take a whole bunch of time off from New Year's, or sorry, Christmas Eve to New Year's Day. I don't work. On my business, I shut down, I spend on my family, and I work on projects around the house. That does help some, but, you know, it's not to me, it's not a sprint at the end. It's kind of a coast at the end, and I think that's a good thing for that annual reboot, but we ain't there yet, so let's do something. Some of you guys are going to be coming and doing something with me. We're going to have a hell of a week this next week coming up. The rest of you guys are going to get rewinds during that period of time. Uh, But I think they'll be enjoyable ones. And again, anybody has any suggestions for topics or things they'd like to be in next week's rewinds, I haven't put them together yet. I'll probably be doing that this weekend. So uh, so get get the stuff over to me. Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com is the email. If you want me to see your email, put TSPC in the subject line. So before we get to the stuff that we're going to be talking about today, well, let's tell you what we're going to be talking about. Here's what we got today. Dealing with gout from Gary Collins, a cryptocurrency market update, and a really good in-depth one from Benjamin Fitz. Using wood chips when you got lots of them available with Ben Falk. Building recurrent revenue models with Nicole Awesome Sauce. Grid-tied solar and blackouts with Sean Mills. Uh, investment uncertainty and the pending election with Gian Pugliano. And I'm going to do more on revitalizing small towns and urban communities. Uh, I talked about building a consortium uh, of of business people in a small community to kind of change things from an exodus from a small town to, you know, an immigration to small towns. And uh, so I'll I'll do my best on that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we uh, dig into it, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at um, this day in history, and we're going to go back to 1948 on this day in history. Guess what happened? Harry Truman defeats Dewey in the uh, presidential election. Why is that even a big deal? I mean, everybody knows we had 
President Truman. Uh, and we, and I think most people know President Truman was reelected. Um, the reason it's a big deal is uh, much like everybody had written out Donald Trump in the election uh, in 2016, everybody had written out uh, Truman. Uh, you know, Roosevelt had been a four-term president through World War II and the Great Depression. Uh, Truman had taken over after uh, Roosevelt's death. Um, the country was weary of war. And Dewey was doing really well in the polls and made an impressive campaign uh, pitch against Truman and kind of this old guard and time for a change. And so everybody just really believed that, that Dewey would win. But so much more so than even with the Trump thing. There were newspapers that had already been permit, uh, printed so that they could immediately go into circulation announcing that Dewey defeats Truman. There's actually copies of these newspapers still around. There's a famous picture of somebody holding one up, and they had to reprint the newspapers. That's how sure they were. And I'm just going to say that I, I have a feeling that this absolute certainty that, well, you know, maybe the Republicans will pick up some seats in the Senate, but they're definitely going to lose the House. I'm not so sure about that. Um, I use my wife kind of as a barometer. She votes. I mean, I don't, but she does, and I don't put her down for it, but she doesn't always vote. And I think this year she voted the first time ever in her adult life in a midterm election. She's only ever voted in general elections prior to this. Um, I think there's a lot of that silent group out there that doesn't talk, that doesn't get real loud, that's pretty motivated right now to vote for Trump. Now, I'm not celebrating Trump's side, I guess. I'm not really celebrating or uh, fretting over it. It doesn't really bother me either way, but I do try to observe it. And I think that we're going to have another one of those surprise elections. And um, love or hate Trump, he does make snowflakes melt. And I, I predict that we might have another one of those election nights where you see people crying and flipping out. And if you're in some of those specific cities where people riot, uh, I would take uh, precautions as well. Uh, on that note, I got a little song I'll play for here. It's about three minutes long, and then we'll, we'll get into your expert panel stuff. Um, it's not the best audio. It's not the best vocals. Here's how it came to be. Um, so a couple days ago, I saw on Fox News while I was eating my lunch, Harris Faulkner was talking about uh, Oprah went to Georgia to, uh, to stump for whatever her name is that's running down there on the Democrat side. And, uh, but with the way Harris put it, she said, Oprah went down to Georgia. And I was like, oh, my God, I've never wanted Charlie Daniels to do a parody of his own music so much in my life. So I put that on Facebook, and, and this guy here um, said, hey, and he started writing some lyrics like immediately like in the comments. I was like, that's actually pretty good. His name is uh, Matt Withrow, and he posted it in the uh, TSP Survival Podcast Facebook forum. And uh, so he did it uh, on his laptop uh, in his car. And then had to record it to get it up on Facebook with his phone. And then since it was on Facebook, not YouTube, where I can strip it, I had to record it by putting the microphone up to the speaker. So uh, give it give it a break on some of the quality here. And he's not, you know, like a professional, you know, music. I don't know if he is or not, but I, I mean, it's completely unfiltered audio, um, and parts of it are a little difficult here and there. But if you think it's partisan, wait till the end. The last verse, it really pushed it over for me. I really liked it. And I just thought this was absolutely hysterical. Oprah went down to Georgia. Oprah went down to Georgia. 
to Georgia, she was looking to race some boats from anywhere she could get them illegals, dead people, or goats. Get her big behind that big blue wave no matter what. Make sure Stacey Abrams got that gubernatorial spot. And a man named Brian Kemp stood up and said, Hold right there, Miss Thang. You ain't in Chicago. We ain't buying that southern twang. Folks around here will see right through your platitudes and such. On election day, you'll see your efforts just won't matter much. She said, My name's Oprah, and in case you haven't heard, I'm the queen of daytime talk. You feel me? Back on up now, nerd. Ryan practice all of your expressions and spirit. Jovial and friendly. Stacy popped her head up, say, Can I get a word in here? Brian and Oprah both said no, just have a seat now, dear. Then Oprah walked up on stage and blew the crowd a kiss. Then Gail and Stedman joined in and it sounded something like this. Oh my God, Oprah has been my best friend for my whole life. She's always been there for me, no matter what. And it doesn't even matter that nothing I'm saying has anything to do with the candidate. Uh, tears, hug. You get a vote. You get a vote. You get a vote. Everybody gets a vote. When Oprah finished, Brian said, well, you're pretty good, old gal. But when I'm done with my speech, y'all gonna throw in the towel. If you believe in family ties, not the mainstream media lies. When it all was said and done, the only ones who lost were the ones who played the game because they think they need a boss. Next time around, just drop that ballot and smack yourself with that hand, because in the end, they all dance while you're forced to pay the band. All right, with that Election Day humor out of the way, let me remind you, you will not hear me again live until after the election. So my prediction is that the Republicans either keep the House Or if they lose it, they lose it very narrowly. I'm talking maybe half a dozen seats, enough to cause that big disruption that the, the Democrats want to cause. And uh, we'll talk about the aftermath a little bit when I get back the following week, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, just we're, you won't be getting election news all next week with me. You'll be getting you know down-to-earth, practical how-to stuff in TSP Rewinds. On the note of down-to-earth and how-to and practical How about dealing with gout? That's a that's a that's a, a condition that affects more people than you'd think. It's not a fun one, and uh, Gary Collins is going to talk to us about how to deal with it specifically from a nutritional standpoint. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of thesimplelifenow.com. Make sure you sign up for my newsletter to stay updated on everything I'm doing, and check out my best-selling going off the grid books and life simplification. Um, you guys know I don't use social media really anymore. 
But today's question on dealing with gout, we have uh, actually answered this a couple of times. So it seems to be a reoccurring uh, kind of question. And also, uh, to be honest, from the statistics I've seen, gout is on the rise uh, worldwide, actually, not just America. But um, gout is basically an overabundance of uric acid, which uric acid is a natural component inside the body. Once you get too much... It causes an inflammatory effect, kind of like even like an omega six. To me, that you hear that omega omega six is in the right amount are beneficial. Too much causes inflammation. This is common with just certain chemicals within the body. Too much of certain things is not a good thing. What uric acid will do is it'll cause a crystallization primarily in your joints, and it becomes very painful. It's a form of arthritis, which arthritis obviously is caused by chronic inflammation. The easiest way to tell uh, if you're having a, a gout onset is it usually starts in your big toe. Uh, dep- it depends on the foot, but it's usually the same big toe every time. Now, dealing with it, the problem today is uric acid is primarily produced in overabundance by an overconsumption of fructose. And you guys know we've talked about this several times in the past. Fructose is processed differently than glucose. Glucose is processed by the pancreas, and uh, fructose is, is processed through the liver. So they have different reactions. And the whole thing with fructose back in the day was that fructose was better because you didn't have a blood glucose uh, rise, And yes and no. Initially, no, but the studies have found if you continually ingest high amounts of fructose, actually it does cause a rise in blood glucose eventually. That's a big problem. So with with fructose, you're going to find high fructose corn syrup in everything today, causing huge amounts of, of health problems. We, you know, type 2 diabetes, you know, uh, cardiac uh, cardiac disease, you know, high blood pressure. It just goes on and on and on. So the thing I tell people who suffer from gout is you need to really take a look at your diet. Are you eating a lot of processed foods, a lot of uh, diets or diet soda, sodas, sugar sodas, diet sodas are bad too in a different way. But Another thing is people think, well, if I drink a bunch of juice, that's better. Well, juice is like getting fructose in a mega dose. Uh, re- remember, you know, eating an orange and then drinking a glass of orange juice, how many oranges does it take to get a glass of orange juice? A lot, much more than you could ever eat. You've eliminated the fiber and cellulose, which helps block the absorption and utilization of those sugars. So, yeah, I know it's getting a little complicated here, but my advice would be to... Do a diet check. Look at your labels. You shouldn't be eating a lot of foods that come in packages anyways. Then, no fruit juice, no fruit, and watch your alcohol. There are some studies, and there's no real good evidence on this right now. I've looked into it several times. But people who are prone to gout, if alcohol seems to set them off, and they don't know why. No clue. It just it was part of the data that came back from gout studies that the people who tended to have gout flare ups tended to drink more alcohol than the average person in some cases. You know, studies. 
they're rough. So on the natural side, the things I always recommend, obviously I just went over diet, watch, watch the, you know, cut out all fruit juice, all fruit, actually. I'm not one of those who's if ands. If, if you have a problem with gout, do not consume fruit. If you do very little, because obviously you have a sensitivity to fructose. Um, ginger, cinnamon, and turmeric are my favorites. First of all, because they're very strong um, anti-inflammatories. They help control blood sugar as well, all three of them. So those are my three go-tos almost in anything when it comes to inflammation. They're the best combination by far that I've found. Hope that helps, guys. And remember, I'm a company in MSB, so you get 10% off all your orders at thesimplelifenow.com to include my very popular supplement line, which a lot of people love and have for years. Take care. Next up, I have asked uh, Ben Fitz of Crypto Gulch to give us a cryptocurrency market update. There's actually a ton going on right now. Uh, since crypto is not making people into Lamborghini owners overnight at the moment, uh, a lot of eyes have come off of it and gone on to other things. Crypto's not gone; it ain't gone away, and it ain't, you know, and it's 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 still got some really exciting things going on. And I think the best days of crypto are yet to come. Uh, so I asked Ben to tell us what's going on out there, and there's a bunch. So here you go. If you've been wondering what's been going on with crypto, Bitcoin, all that good stuff, um, Ben, tell us what's up. Hey, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners, this is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch, and today we have an update on the crypto markets. So we're going to talk about the cryptocurrency markets in general, and we'll also talk a little bit about mining towards the end of the show. So let's talk about Bitcoin first of all. The Bitcoin price has been relatively stable recently. A couple things that possibly are going to affect the price here is that Bitcoin futures were approved, and that means that people will be basically predicting the future price of Bitcoin. That's going to have some interesting effects as people are kind of gambling on, on the price of Bitcoin in the future. Bitcoin ETFs are still under debate from the SEC. Now, the SEC has received many applications for Bitcoin ETFs. That's an exchange-traded fund. ETF is an exchange-traded fund, and it's more commonly used by traditional and institutional investors as an investment platform. So they're really used to that, and it's believed that when those are approved, it's going to bring a lot more money into into Bitcoin and that should hopefully drive the price up. So every time a Bitcoin ETF is coming up for approval, then the price of Bitcoin goes up a little bit while people are speculating. And then it's denied and the price crashes. So that's kind of been the process the last several months. An ETF will come up for approval and is denied. What's changed recently is that the SEC has gone back to several of the applicants for these Bitcoin ETFs and said, hey, we want you to give us more information. And, and they've started a two-way exchange where they're really trying to get more information. And it seems like they're beginning to soften on the idea of these ETFs. They're really trying to work with those companies to get their applications, you know, more in line with what the SEC is looking for. Whether or not that means they're going to approve something, who knows. 
By the way, I never said this, but I'm not a financial advisor, so none of this is investment advice. I'm just telling you news about what's going on in the crypto markets, and you have to decide for yourself whether or not it's something you want to invest in. Having said that, that's the Bitcoin news. Coinbase has been adding coins, which is kind of interesting, and they allow the market to now suggest coins for Coinbase. I'm not real happy with the coins that have been listed so far. They listed 0x, which is a decentralized exchange and marketplace. I'm not sure why they even have their own token if they're trading Ethereum assets and things. I, I don't get it. Um, it's just me. Maybe someone can explain it to me. I also don't get USD coin. USD coin is supposedly tied to the dollar. The problem is that it's tied to the dollar, right? We're on, we're on the survival podcast. We know the problems with that. We listen to Jack and others. And there's also supposedly some back doors in the code that allow them to do things like blacklist wallet addresses and maybe seize your funds and things. Really kind of sketchy stuff. So I suggest that you probably, if you listen to this show, you might want to avoid that project. Binance is the largest exchange and Binance has released or added a couple of projects that we sometimes talk about on the show. And that's given those projects a big boost. One of those is Decred and Decred was listed on Binance just a couple days ago. And Decred has also uh, made the announcement that they've turned over their treasury to the Decred stakeholders. So you can get a ticket which allows you to vote. You uh, basically buy a ticket with some of your Decred, and then after you vote, you are given that Decred back plus a little extra. Not a lot, but it allows you to vote on the governance of Decred, and it's like earning a little interest on your stake. So that's been big news for Decred that their project has done that. That's usually something that the marketplace rewards is transparency and, and giving the market and the stakeholders control. Ravencoin was also recently added to Decred, and we talk about Ravencoin a good bit on the show. Ravencoin is getting ready to deploy their asset layer at the end of this month, and that's going to allow people to register asset names they're unique names and they can be broken down into subcategories. So you can have an NFL asset and then have a Houston Texans sub asset under that and then a JJ Watt sub asset under Houston Texans. You know, so you could have like trading cards and I mean, there's a lot of different things that it can be used for. It could be used for ICOs if you're in an area where an ICO is approved. It can be used for games. And one of the problems with Ethereum is that even though your asset, your, your Ethereum token is, it's not a unique name. So people can accidentally register the same token names and that causes confusion for people using Ethereum. So that's going to be preventable with Ravencoin. They also expect that people can squat. People can pick things. I don't think you want to pick trademark terms because you probably can't swap squat on trademark terms, but kind of like domain squatting, there's going to be an option to squat on some Ravencoin assets. 
And if you want to do that, you need to watch and you need to go do a little bit of research to make sure that you're doing that the right way because they have enabled that where you can own a token and then reissue it. You can, you can transfer it to somebody else and they can reissue it so they can, they can do with it what they want. And you don't want to screw that up because if you screw that up, then that token might not be worth anything. So even though you squatted on something good, basically you ruined it. Anyway, that's for those of you that enjoy that kind of thing. Do a little research or message me and I'll point you to some videos where you can learn about that. Ravencoin's been really good for mining and I think that's also helped been a boost to the Ravencoin community and driving interest in the project. But unfortunately, Ravencoin's really only been good for mining on NVIDIA video cards. It hasn't been good on AMD video cards and I don't know if that's because the... AMD architecture is different, or if it's because the software just needs to be improved. So we'll have to wait and see if the Ravencoin mining software on AMD gets better or not. If you are an AMD miner, you might want to take a look at BitTube. One of our customers turned us on to that project. It's basically an alternative to YouTube that is not going to have advertisements and is going to reward the content holders. And it's censorship-free. Now, there are some other projects doing the same thing. So there's DTube, which is out there right now. And DTube uses Steam, which is a well-known token that already exists. And it's a network where you can blog and get paid and rewards for posting on Steam. So I'm not sure about BitTube versus DTube. However, the cool thing is that BitTube is mineable. So you can mine BitTube, and if you have AMD cards, they do fairly well because it uses a derivative of Monero's algorithm, Kryptonite. And so the AMD cards do better at that than the NVIDIA. Also, Ethereum. They have decided to delay the Ethereum fork. So the Ethereum fork was going to come out, it was supposed to have launched already, and what it was going to do, among other things, was it was going to reduce the block reward from three Ethereum to two. So that means every 14 seconds when someone mines a block of Ethereum, they would get two Ethereum instead of three. So that's a pretty huge chain. It would cut, change. It would cut the reward by one third. Well, that fork has been blocked for now and probably won't happen until early 2019. So that's good news if you're mining Ethereum, is that the block rewards were delayed. Also, interesting to note, the Ethereum developers on their conference call were actually talking about changing the algorithm to PROG POW, PROG PAL. And that's interesting. I would have just thought it was a rumor unless I had actually heard part of the conference call where they were actually, the Ethereum developers were actually talking about it. And they were actually talking about changing the algorithm from methhash to prog POW. Prog POW is an algorithm that's considered to be more favorable to miners. And it's supposed to level the playing field between the different types of mining hardware so that there is less of a performance boost between different types of hardware. It does not mean that there's not going to be specialized ASIC miners. It just means that a GPU and an ASIC would be more similar than with some of the other algorithms that are out there. 
So that's interesting news from Ethereum, and it would probably mean that GPU miners would get better rewards than they're getting currently because they're outclassed right now by ASIC miners. So kind of interesting stuff. And um, I think that's all I've gone a little bit over today. So hope you guys enjoy this little news segment on cryptocurrency. If you like it, please reply back and let us know, and we'll try and add these in occasionally. Again, remember, I'm not a financial advisor, so I'm not giving you financial advice. I'm just giving you some news, and you can do your own research and decide whether or not you want to invest in any of these projects. Have a great day. Bye. Good stuff from Ben. Like I said, lots of stuff going on. That's kind of like a little mini cryptocurrency podcast in its own right there. Next up, I have a question for Ben Falk on a nice problem to have. How about you can have 30 yards of wood chips delivered at your house, and if you want more, you can just call them up, and they'll do it again, and they'll keep doing it until you stop asking for it. What do you do with all that, Ben? Let us know, man. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question about the guy who has endless access to wood chips. They'll get he can get 30 cubic yard loads delivered for free from the county, and as many as he wants. That's amazing. That's awesome. Get them delivered. And as far as what to do with them, uh, as you know, these things are so valuable. Um, I like your ideas. All in all, it sounds like you have a tough site. Um, I would spread a whole bunch out, you know, try to get a tractor if you don't have one or, you know, a loader or some kind of thing. You can really spread them out. Um, I wouldn't spread them necessarily too deep. I find the best active kind of biology from wood chips are when you spread about a foot deep. Um, maybe in your climate, it could be two feet deep. But when you get real tall piles, the activity is really at the bottom. Um and I would I would do some experiments because this is pretty unusual and spread some you know in an area uh, you know one or two areas and then I would also try to actively compost others and try to get some manure and it really just like make compost with it uses a feedstock for compost and then you know spread that compost to get the kind of production and regeneration going that you want and then also see if you could plant through. The chips, once they break down a bit in the other spots, that's going to take a while. Um, you know, stuff's not going to want to grow just in like a foot of wood chips. Although it's amazing what will come through a foot of wood chips, mostly really weedy stuff that you don't necessarily want. Um, but you're going to build the soil up really good, which is a win for you no matter what you want to do. Um, if you want to grow native grasses and graze, so you, you don't, you want grass. If you want grass and not woodies, you know, I think you're going to want to turn most of this into compost and then spread the compost and then manage your grazing well. But for woodies, you might have good luck also spreading the chips and planting through it. You know, Maybe it's half an inch that you spread it at first. Um, but either way, try to get some nitrogen in there too. Some manure is going to be your friend to balance it out and urine too. If you can get cubic yards of urine delivered and dump on top of the chips, then you're really starting to make gold happen. Um, we pour urine, all the pee in buckets all winter because there's no value to just peeing on plants in the winter and um, dump those buckets of urine that I save up, you know, every, well, every four days or something, I'll go out and dump it on wood chips and that's like my urine disposal place all winter. It makes gold. I mean, the bottom foot of these piles just become like potting soil composts. It's really what we should probably all be doing with our urine 
for the most part. Um, wood chips are the place, you know, pure carbon, not pure, but mostly carbon. Great place to put high nitrogen materials. And in the cold climates, when things are dormant for six months a year, four to six months, just wood chip piles out in the yard is the place to, to go with it. So good luck for, good luck with you. And, um, pretty amazing. You have that resource. So I'll just have a little bit of an addition here to what I've noticed with spreading out wood chips really thick. I'm talking six, eight inches, and I, I'm not afraid to go more than that uh, with keeping down some of the weeds and woodies and things like that that Ben's talking about. The, the best way I know to do that is to improve the nutrients in the soil before the chips go down. So how might you do that? One is a very thin layer of compost. That is that is great if you have access to the compost. And with that much wood chips, like what Ben was saying, you could do some composting and make your own. If you have a front end loader, you can compost a couple, you know, a couple a couple twenty yards of wood chips pretty fast as long as you got enough green material to go with them. Uh, but you can use that front bucket loader to turn it, and it makes a hell of a lot more sense than turning it with a pitchfork. Um, so some compost is a good idea, but. Liquid molasses or dry molasses, horticultural molasses. You put a bunch of sugar down there and you up the microorganisms. You bring in things like beneficial nematodes and stuff like that. And a lot of these weeds don't really like to grow in highly fertile situations. They like to grow in nutrient deficient situations. That's their purpose. They're reparative, uh, reparative uh, pioneers. And the places where we've done some compost... And we've done liquid molasses and then maybe some rock minerals uh, like lava, lava sand or something like that or green sand. Um, and then soak uh, or, or mix up like a big uh, sprayer full of like garret juice or compost tea. And then after the wood chips go down, drench them with that. Generally what ends up happening for us is almost nothing grew for a while. I mean, almost nothing at all. Like it just, it just acted like it was a almost like a, like I put a wheat blocker down. And then when things did start coming through it, it was things like plantain and stuff like that. Now we also have had a you know 120 ducks that were uh, grazing any little thing that popped up in there over time and manuring it. So if you have animals in this system, that changes things as well. Um, I wouldn't be afraid of putting down just about any amount of it um, if as long as you have no problem mowing then those woody weeds and stuff like that really aren't that big of an issue because no matter what it is, it's getting it's going to get hit down. And the the micro micro life that's going to develop in there over time is going to be huge. I would really think, though, about a compost tea spray. Uh, a little compost can go a long way as a compost tea with a sprayer. And I would personally, no matter what else you're putting down or not putting down, I would spray the area, then I would lay the chips, and then I would spray the chips again. And, and that will just seed it with so much beneficial microbial life. And I would feed it with some sort of a sugar as well. Again, uh, dry molasses is a really great product. If I was going to do it, if I had this problem, right, you want to call it a problem, uh, first of all, I would find, buy, borrow, beg, steal a tractor with a front end loader to keep for a year because I'd be doing this. Be on, i got three acres. Uh, they, they, they'd get tired of me and say we're not bringing any more before, before I ran out of need for it. Um, but my approach would be a compost tea spray, uh, a dry molasses, and if I could have enough, a, a light layer of compost. Then the wood chips. And then I would spray the wood chips or soak the wood chips 
with uh, with a, a liquid molasses concentrate dilution. So you know you put in a, a couple tablespoons per gallon of water of the liquid molasses and spray the wood chips with that. And I'm telling you, it'll transform a property like you can't believe. The places we've done it are drastically different. It, yeah, I would I would buy a used tractor with a front end loader just just for that. If I had this opportunity, you do so. Make the most of it. Next up, we're going to talk about recurrent revenue models with Nicole Sauce. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here with a question on how to set up a recurring revenue model. This is a really good question. And you may wonder, what is a recurring revenue model? Well, it's just what it sounds like. It's a way whereby you have recurring revenue coming in for something week over week, month over month, year over year. Sounds a lot like a subscription, right? Well, what else is like that? Dollar Shave Club does that. ButcherBox does that. Jack has an MSB where you annually renew. He does that. And guess who else does that? Holler Roast Coffee. Just launched our Coffee of the Month Club, and that is a recurring revenue model. So why would you do this? From the business standpoint, Having a recurring revenue model is more predictable from a cash flow standpoint and also for inventory management. It's kind of awesome that way. A lot of businesses have a hard time predicting when our high and low times are, especially in the first few years of business. If you're able to set up your business on a recurring revenue model or a subscription basis, you have a means by which you can plan a lot more easily than if you're just sort of winging it. And that's the big, that, I mean, that's the biggest reason to do it from a, from a business management standpoint. The other thing from a business management standpoint is as you build that base of recurring revenue, you get to focus on quality of the experience for your existing members over new acquisitions. Now that doesn't mean you don't still do new acquisitions, but it reduces the amount of conversion you have to do to be successful in your business. Because if somebody's committed to a year of coffee of the month, then that's done. Now I just need to make sure it goes well for them, right? If somebody needs to be convinced every month to order another four or five pounds of coffee, that's acquisition every month. Now, it may be easier once they've had the experience but it's still more of an acquisition than a quality of experience focus. And, you know, I'd rather focus on quality of experience personally. And then from the customer standpoint, they have a better customer experience because they don't have to think about every month, I need to order a butcher box or I need to order coffee. They set it up. They're like, I know I drink this much coffee a month. Set it up, subscribe, boom, everything happens. And from a customer standpoint, that can be a godsend. I have one person I've been talking to who keeps meaning to sign up for a subscription. Who's like, yeah, once that's done, that's going to be great because I don't have to remember to go back to my computer and I'm not on my computer very often. So that's great. I would love to help customers with that problem. This kind of reminds me of the first time I ever sold an annual contract for ads in the Center Hill Sun. I had a client who for a year and a half had been putting a half page ad in our paper every time. And every time it came like near deadline for ads time, I'd like pop into her store. I would be all nervous. She'd be all nervous because I was selling and she was being sold to. And then she'd commit to the ad. Then I'd go home and I'd email her about what's in your ad. And one time I walked in and I just said, you know what? How about this? 
You've done this for the last year and a half. Here's the price for a year. Why don't you commit to that now? And then every time I come in here for the next year, I'm asking you what's in your ad rather than if you're going to place an ad. And we can really just focus on making this ad, you know, this, this ad space work for you. And she bought it. Think about that. So just by changing the dynamic a little bit, she was happier. I was happier. And we, it both worked out for us, right? We could focus on quality of her experience rather than are you going to buy an ad? So. If you want to set up a recurring revenue model, here's what you got to do. One, I think you need to know the pain of not having it. It's very important to get motivated sometimes. You feel the pain. Two, set goals so that you know what you need to have as far as volume in order to be successful. Three, launch something that is a recurring revenue model, including integration on your website, making sure you, you do the inventory management. And I tend to do sort of the small before I go big. So I'll be like, there are 50 seats in Coffee of the Month Club versus there are 357 seats in the Coffee of the Month Club. And then develop subscriber benefits. Give them a reason to, to subscribe, right? So if you buy coffee one-off, you don't get the car air freshener that that I have, that then you get a refill every month in your subscription. But if you subscribe or do coffee of the month, you do get that. And it's an extra little thing. And then I have different benefits that pop in the longer people subscribe. And those sorts of things are kind of, you know, they're fun to surprise people with. And, and they can also be something that makes them okay, say, okay, well, you know, I'll subscribe to this because it comes with this other free thing. I might as well do it. I'm going to buy coffee every month anyway. And then the next thing you need to do is be purposeful about your advertising and collateral material. Cause even though I said earlier, it does change your dynamic with your customers from acquisition to focusing on quality of experience, you do still need to have the, the long term in mind and be building your, your customer base. So how did this go down with hollow roast coffee? Well, I'll tell you the pain I felt was the seasonality of coffee roasting really heavy in the winter, really light in the summer. And that was making it hard for me to see, okay, like how am I going to keep this as a full-time income through the summer months? And then my, my second pain was that I had one product and having one product over time, it's like people get sick of your one product and they move on to somebody else's one product. So I thought, well, I might as well add additional farms. And then I sat down with a pen and paper and I was like, oh, if I sell 357 pounds of coffee a month, that's what I need for a full-time income. That's it. 357 pounds. Incidentally, that matches um, the the caliber of the sidearm I prefer to carry. Just as an aside, I thought that was a magical moment when I did the math. And so I was like, okay, how do I get there? Well, subscriptions can get me there and adding additional coffee. So we added a Brazil blend, which people really liked. We added a Tanzanian blend and it's, it's called Patrick's private reserve because it's, uh, it's one that Patrick, the knife maker really likes the flavor of. So he, uh, he also cross promotes that and we made it easy for people to say one time order versus weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, every quarter, however they want to do it. And that was pretty much it. Well, then I was like, okay, but. If you subscribe, do you get a discount or do you get premium stuff? And I thought, well, Hollow Roast Coffee isn't really 
Like the goal isn't to make it as cheap as possible. It's a premium experience. So we'll, we'll add things. So that, you know, the first thing that came up was the car air freshener. And I, I can't tell y'all what's coming next, but other things are going to happen over the next 12 months. And then I was like, okay, well, this isn't as sexy as I want it to be. And I was kind of shooting the breeze with some of my close advisors, one of whom is Patrick. And the coffee of the month idea came out. And that was over the summer. And as we got to talking about it, I was like, you know, here's the cool thing about coffee of the month, right? You get a different bean every month to try. You can try all sorts of different things from different regions. It's like, it's like taking a tour of the world through the, through the view of how coffee tastes. And that's kind of cool. So I tasted a bunch of beans and came up with 12 for the first year. And then I thought, well, when should I launch this? August? No, not August. September? No, not September. October. Mid-October is when we want to launch this because it's the perfect timing for right when people are looking for that unusual Christmas gift. And of the month clubs are something that you see a lot of at Christmas. And I thought, you know... If I was going to buy somebody a coffee of the month club, it would probably be around Christmas. So we'll launch in time for holiday. And then people, of course, can sign up anytime during the year and they join the world tour wherever we are in the world. That's part of the fun of it. So from there, the only thing we've had to really think of is how that advertising campaign looks between now and Christmas, between New Year's and Valentine's Day and into hiking season. We have some really cool stuff coming up for hiking season, by the way, but I won't tell you about that till another time. Anyway, that's how you set up a recurring revenue model. Now, you may wonder, okay, well, I'm a podcaster. I'm a YouTuber. I'm a whatever you are. I develop content. How does recurring revenue work for content? Well, you have a really good model already in this podcast, in the form of Jack Spearco with his MSB. What you do first is you develop a following, come up with benefits that are going to be worth a darn to the people who like you, like, oh, I don't know, MSB discounts, workshop videos, like all of those things. Uh, you get to sign up for his annual workshop if you're an MSB member before everybody else, so you have a better chance of getting your spot. You come up with that package of what people are, might like you deploy your program and then you make sure you keep up on it. And then from there, and this is like the secret sauce, I think of, of uh, recurring revenue, figure out ways to turn it into more revenue, right? An example is I, I have a podcast, I have a membership program. And one of my benefits is I write a recipe of the week that people who sign up get and they can try it. Well, that just by, Nature of the fact that at the end of the year, there's going to be, you know, 48 to 50 recipes that have been produced. I can easily produce that into a recipe book, the 2018 Living Free in Tennessee recipe book. And for my members, it's a free download. It's a PDF. They can print it out. They can use it. it ha- it'll have it sorted by what kind of thing it is, if it's a side dish, if it's a main dish, if it's a dirt dessert, like whatever it is. But better, I can then take that and allow a print copy to be for sale for one price for members and for another price for non-members. So people who decided not to become a member can still buy the book. And this brings me to a different kind of recurring revenue. And that's those long tail sorts of content oriented, oriented things like CDs, you know, your knife making CD, for example, books, uh, video programs, like all of these different things that you can develop over time and then put out there and that becomes an ongoing recurring revenue model for you where you're not putting a lot of input into it. It's 
something that if you're going to start down the path of recurring revenue and start subscriptions, if it's a product subscription, it's one thing. But if you're in content, you start opening up a whole lot of different ways to feed back into your revenue model and keep yourself fueled. So you see how they kind of feed each other? It's almost like a circle. Like you have members, you give them stuff on a regular basis at the end of a certain period of time you can give them another product. And that's kind of cool how that will work. Anyway, if you're interested in the work I do, you can check me out over at livingfreeintennessee.com. Or if I got you at all interested in the Coffee of the Month Club and you want to go on an international adventure this year, you can sign up over at hollerroast.com, H-O-L-L-E-R-R-O-A-S-T.com. If you spell it wrong, I think I have a redirect for you anyway. But, you know, it's better to spell it right out of the shoot. So, Jack, you rock. I can't wait to see you next week and looking forward to the workshop, TSP. Make it a great week. So I actually uh, kind of poked Nicole into doing this because, one, I knew she had the Coffee of the Month Club coming, so I thought it would be a good pitch, but I also know she's very switched on about it. And this is a very important topic. Uh, this is probably on a Just Jack show going through the end of the year, something we're going to revisit, so I'll, I'll hold my comments uh, of addition here uh, till then because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely talk to you guys about developing recurrent revenue models going forward through, you know, before we finish 2018 as a full show. I do want to say one thing. Nicole had an issue when she launched this. The discount code that she has in the MSB for members to get a discount on her coffee, she can't use one code for both things, for one-off buying and for membership buying. So she offers a discount to both. She has sent me an updated blurb. I've got another company I'm bringing on the MSB. Sometime during this weekend, I hope to get the MSB updated. If you want to get on her Coffee of the Month Club and you are an MSB member, and you go and you do not see a way to get on the Coffee of the Month Club with a discount because I ain't made the update yet. And if it's today, it probably will not happen. i got to go buy a whole bunch of stuff to feed a whole bunch of people this evening. Um, so that's not going to happen today. So if you email me with TSPC in the subject line and, and let me know you're a member, just give me your member username, and uh, that way I can verify that you are. Uh, I, I will manually send you the code that you need for the Coffee of the Month Club. And I'll just say there's some cool stuff coming to it that I know about that you don't get to know yet. Anyway, next up we have a question for Sean Mills on if you have a grid-tied solar system, is there any way to have any power during a power outage without you know putting uh, the people that are trying to fix the problem at risk with backfeed like we talked about with generators? Uh, is there any way to do that, Sean? Let's talk about it. Tell us, man. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com and today I have an expert panel question from Mike in Oregon. Mike says, is it possible to leverage a grid-tied system during a blackout by faking out the solar inverter such that it believes municipal power is present, perhaps through the use of a pure sign inverter? Details. A few years back, I had a 3-kilowatt grid-tied solar system installed in my home for the primary purposes of offsetting future utility costs. Since I've already broken even on the system, it's all money from here on out, but less awesome on the independence front. In the meantime, I've built a battery bank, purchased a generator, installed a transfer switch, and have stored fuel on site. According to my calculations, I anticipate that I could power important systems and devices for about two and a half weeks with high levels of use. One of the disaster scenarios for my region has us without power for one to three months. I could obviously cut back on my plan with respect to what I want to power, 
but it leaves me curious as to whether or not grid-tied solar inverters can be tricked into believing municipal power is present by feeding a transfer switch with a 240-volt split-phase PureSign inverter, thereby allowing me to change or charge my battery bank opportunistically via my existing solar power resources. I've tried to research this myself and have been left with ambiguous answers. It appears that some may have had success in doing this using two full-sized solar inverters, at which point the cost would not be worth it for me. Other references claim that the solar inverters periodically attempt to feed power back to the grid in order to verify that power is properly absorbed, and if not, they will completely shut down. Is this an idea that warrants an attempt, or will I likely end up blowing a good chunk of money for no return and or damage my equipment? My solar inverter is an Aurora 3 kilowatt system. Uh, I've attached an image with ridiculously small text describing the technical specs. Thanks for that, Mike. Uh, I've got six 12-volt flooded deep-cycle marine batteries totaling 570 amp-hours wired up in pairs with each, each pair running independent parallel power cables to the inverter input. If it matters, I have a long-term desire to swap these out with lithium or other high-cycle count technology at some point when they start to die. The battery bank inverter is currently a Whistler 1600-watt 12 volts to modified sign. Mike from Oregon. Hey, first of all, Mike, congrats on getting back on your return on investment on your PV system. That's awesome. Uh, now, there are a few models of inverters on the market now that will allow you to have a duplex outlet with either 1,500 or 2,000 watts of power. So in that scenario, you could buy one of those and just replace your grid tie inverter uh, with this new inverter with a single duplex outlet on it. So that is an option. It is relatively expensive, uh, but it does allow you to utilize at least, you know, 2,000 watts would be two-thirds of your 3,000-watt system at any one time. One of the issues with those is that they are, um, they are uh, I, I don't know if the term would be downrated, but essentially if you're not getting full sun or you're not getting or you've got shade or something else that's reducing the amount of uh, solar that you're getting, it will derate that uh, that wattage that you can get out of that um, that plug. So that's probably not the best way for you to go. Uh, also, assuming you have a fridge and a freezer, the startup draw may be more than those outlets can handle. Uh, I would think that if you went with that 1,600-watt Whistler, which has a 3,200-watt surge rating, uh, you probably chose that because it will handle the startup draw from your compressors. Uh, another option would be to switch out your current inverter for one of those uh, inverters with an outlet and just use your battery bank slash generator off-grid system for the things with the higher draws. So, you know, you could do that. I don't think that's probably the best option. I think your best option, uh, well, actually, to answer your specific question, the short answer is that these grid-tied inverters are very picky about the power they have coming in from the grid-tie or the grid side of the system. Uh, I would personally not try to bypass that system because it's way too easy to either backfeed to the grid or to damage your inverter. Uh, I think you probably heard the recent story Jack covered about the lineman that was killed in Florida because of generator backfeed. Um, my suggestion for the system, uh, and again, this is assuming that the Whistler has already been appropriately sized, is to allow yourself to convert the system to a proper off-grid system in the event of a prolonged power outage. Uh, at the end of the day, the real problem we're trying to solve here is accessing the solar array 
during a prolonged grid down scenario, not necessarily making the grid tight inverter work without a grid. That would be a solution to that system. Uh, but you already have most of the hardware for this solution in place. We have to remember that the way an electrical circuit works is that it must be a closed loop. In the scenario of a grid down situation with a grid tied inverter, the loop is opened by the inverter itself once it stops sensing the grid power. So what we want to do is to close that loop by installing a transfer switch on both incoming lines from the array, a charge controller to take the solar power to put it directly into the batteries, and, and your Whistler inverter that you already have. The transfer switches will completely reroute the incoming direct current from the panels to the charge controller instead of routing it to the grid tie inverter at all. So essentially we're isolating the grid tie inverter from the whole system. We're letting it sit over there by itself attached to the grid that's also down and we're essentially converting the whole system over to an off-grid system. Um, now you're going to want to understand what the incoming voltage is from the panels because grid tie inverters have an activation voltage on the DC side that's normally higher than a standard charge controller is going to like. Uh, your specific inverter specs call for 200 volt nominal, but that isn't just adjustable from 120 up to 250. Uh, so you may need to upsize your, upsize your charge controller to match the incoming voltage, uh, or you may need to look at running a separate set of inputs specifically for the DC side, uh, using a combiner box to reduce the voltage while increasing the amperage. If you went this route, you wouldn't need a transfer switch because at that point you'd be running off, um, you'd running on, on, uh, excuse me, you would be running an off grid only input. That's a lot of, uh, vowels in a row and actually going up on your roof whenever you're sit, wherever or wherever your system is located to manually switch the connectors from one system to the other. If your panels are already using MC4 connectors, this is, this is not a hard thing to do. Although you may find that once you evaluate the cost of new connectors, a new combiner box, the wiring and the conduit, stepping up the charge controller might be the most cost effective and it's definitely going to be less labor intensive. Now, I shouldn't end this without mentioning uh, the fact that you could always store more fuel. I don't know how much fuel storage you have, um, but, you know, if you're only talking about running really, uh, you know, major requirement systems like food preservation systems, um, you know, some lighting, things like that, uh, if you've only got two and a half weeks worth of fuel, Adding fuel may be the easiest way to extend your system. Uh, obviously, you could look at maybe using a uh, propane generator and a, um, a you know a propane pig that could extend the life and, and maybe provide you access to do some other things like maybe converting your kitchen over to pro propane or hot water heat over to propane. Um, you know, so that's something you should probably look into before you decide to completely reroute this system, but the reality is you have the panels, you have the battery bank, you have the inverter, right? So really the only thing that's that's preventing you from using this system off-grid is having a charge controller that matches the incoming voltage uh, from the DC uh, panels and taking that electricity and putting it into the battery bank and then running it from the battery bank through into uh, your Whistler. Uh, later down down the line, you might even look at trading that Whistler out for an actual inverter charger. And what that would allow you to do is instead of using the transfer switch for the generator, you have the inverter charger, 
you wire your generator into that, you wire your battery bank into that, and now your solar panels can, again, in a prolonged grid-down situation, be switched over to charge your batteries, run through that inverter, and then that inverter can run off of generator power, or it can take the excess generator power and put that into their battery bank as well. So there's a lot of options. That's what a standard uh, off-grid system is going to look like. It's going to be inverter charger, generator, battery bank, solar panels, or wind, microhydro, whatever you want to call it, you know, whatever you've got. With that being said, Mike, thanks for the question. Uh, if you've got any uh, follow-up, you can send it to me at sean at hackmysolar.com. I'll post on the blog or the Facebook page. I check those pretty regularly. And uh, keep sending the questions in, guys. I really enjoy answering them for you. Thanks, and have a great one. So like most things, you want to know, can I do something? The answer is yes. Should I do? The answer is it depends. Anyway, let's go on from there. Um, been a lot of concern about the stock market. Stock market uh, recently erased all its gains for the year uh, and then you know, tracked just back up into positive territory. People have been asking me, is it a get-out, get-out, moment? And right now, I'm not saying that it is. And if I was, I would have been doing so already. Um, it is a time for caution. And I personally feel like the elections are a big part of the uncertainty in the market. Markets don't like uncertainty. And when you have a situation like right now, everybody knows how things are and how things will continue to be as long as things stay the way they are from a political standpoint. There's a real chance that the Democrats gain a majority in the House, and there's like a really off chance, you know, 5% maybe, that they also like were completely wrong, the exact opposite of what I said, and they get the Senate too. Then you got a whole new world to deal with. So I think with the markets being uncertain, what happened was that the the large-scale investors took their profits for the year and then hit a reset button and went back in and drove the price back up. And I asked John Pugliano his thoughts on the future of the markets for the average investor and the role the election and the election uncertainty will play in that. And with that, John, take it away. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, we're just a few days out from the midterm elections, and I wanted to provide you with a quick market update and a little bit of commentary to go with it to help you navigate through all the volatility that we've seen in the market this year. Now, 2018 has been a higher than usual amount of volatility in the stock market, but it seems even worse because 2017 had virtually no volatility at all. So we started out the year breaking through all-time record highs after the tax bill was passed. And then no sooner did the market hit all-time record highs in January that a lot of negative news started coming out about President Trump. You know, would he be indicted? Would he be impeached? What was going on with the Mueller investigation? Was his attorney turning against him? What was going on with Stormy Daniels? All these stories coming out about President Trump. And then, of course, with President Trump's big ego, he always goes on defensive and he can't keep his big mouth shut. So that caused more problems about stability in the White House and how much of the Trump economic agenda would be able to keep going because Trump may not be able to stay in the White House. But what has kept this market resilient and the reason that I've stayed in it all year and whenever I've had extra money, I've gone in and bought the dips. My rationale behind that was that corporate earnings had to be a blowout. There was no other way around it. The corporate tax rate was cut from 35% to 21%. 
the Trump administration was going in and cutting back on a lot of regulation, either overtly or covertly. And that in and of itself is a tax cut. And you combine that with the fact that government spending is skyrocketing and the deficit this year is going to be in excess of $700 billion. Well, you put all that together, deficit spending, tax cuts, deregulation, that's a major stimulus plan. And so despite all the drama and all the negative news that was very erratic and extremely hard to predict, the one thing that I was pretty confident in was that corporate profits would be very strong. And that's the way it's working out this year. We're looking at closing out 2018 with the S&P 500 profits up over 20%. The headlines will cause volatility from day to day and week to week, but the long-term performance of the stock market always revolves around profits. And with profits up 20%, it was hard for me to believe that we're going to see a major pullback that would be sustained this year. But now we're closing out the year. We know we're not going to have 20% profits next year. And the results of the midterm election could also squelch what additional stimulus plans Trump has. And so where does that put the market going forward? Well, I can only offer you my opinion. And let's start off with the election. The stock market has already priced in the fact that the Democrats will take over the House, but the Republicans will keep the Senate. In a normal midterm election year, the president in power loses, on average, 30 seats in the House of Representatives. Well, the Democrats only need like 23 or 24 seats to to get a majority. So like I say, it's already priced in. It's a foregone conclusion that they'll take over the House. What I believe Wall Street is also thinking is that that won't drastically derail the Trump agenda. Now, if the Democrats do take over the Senate... That's a whole different ballgame, and I think you could see some really big setbacks in the stock market if that took place, because that's not what's being anticipated. What's being anticipated is that although the Democrats are likely to take over the House, they won't be able to block the current projects that are currently in place, like the tax cuts, like the overt and covert deregulation that's going on, and the executive orders that Trump is likely to use even harder If, in fact, he doesn't have a Republican Congress, I think you can also make the argument that a Democrat led majority in the House of Representatives could actually be beneficial to Donald Trump because, you know, he's had to be somewhat respectful of Congress because they were his own party, even though he hasn't agreed with a lot of the things they've done. If he has Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Water as the face of the Congress, then that's really an easy target for him to hit. And I can see him using some jujitsu moves to, to make that work to his advantage. On the other hand, we also know that Donald Trump's positioning is very fluid. And if he thinks that it's to his advantage to work with the Democrats, he'll do that. So it's also very likely that he could find common ground with the Democrats on things like infrastructure spending or perhaps single-payer health care. you got to remember that Trump is crazy like a fox, and he'll use whatever situation is to his advantage. But assuming that the Republicans can hold the Senate, what I think we're looking at for the next two years is that there's enough fuel in this economy that we can see S&P 500 earnings grow at about 8% a year. You're going to hear a lot of people talking about a slowdown and how we're headed to a recession. And when they compare month over month or quarter over quarter numbers, it's going to look really devastating because you have to remember this year, corporate profits grew at over 20%. There's almost no way we're going to do that next year. And so the narrative is going to be, look at how horrible things are. Look at how growth is slowing down. But you have to remember, growth is not slowing. It's the rate of growth that's slowing. 
corporate profits are going to continue to grow, I believe, at least 8% for the next two years. That'll become increasingly more important as people start talking about a recession and they start talking about how the economy is slowing down. That will make everybody pessimistic. But as long as those profits are growing at 8%, that means that in about 12 months from now, whenever enough positive data and investor euphoria increases to the point where we can maintain price per earnings ratios that we've seen for the last decade or so, that would put the value of the S&P 500 at more than 3,200. That's close to 20% higher than we are right now. And if we get some real irrational exuberance going on, and you know that it doesn't take much to generate that, two or three items of good news and the analysts pumping things up on Wall Street, and we can easily see price per earnings ratios that are in excess of 20. We've seen that over and over again over the last 10 years. It's not out of the realm of possibility that we could see price per earnings ratios of 20 or 22 times earnings. If that happens, that would put the S&P 500 up in the range of 3,800, maybe even 4,000. That seems like an extremely astronomical number right now and that there's no way we could hit it. But I'm telling you, if earnings just grow at 8% a year, and if the market can get pumped up with a little irrational exuberance, then I think that's not only probable, I also think it's likely. And that would put the stock market up well above 40% from where it is right now. And so for me, as I've assessed the potential for this market, I think that the risk-reward potential is favorable enough for me to stay in the market and to buy these dips because I do think we're going higher over the next 12 to 18 months. And the only caveat, the only thing that really concerns me is what the Federal Reserve is going to do with interest rates. Now, my take on this is that I think that it's likely that the Federal Reserve will raise up to one more percent from where we are right now. If the Federal Reserve does raise 1% over the next 12 months or so, maybe even out to 18 months, that would put the 30-year mortgage at about 6%. Right now, given where wages are, I don't think that the housing market can sustain payments above 6% interest. Right now, they're at about 5%. We've seen housing sales slow down. We've seen car sales slow down. And that's exactly what the Federal Reserve wants to do. They don't want the economy to run away with inflation. And so if they keep gradually raising rates, I believe that they think that that balance is going to be somewhere around that 6% mortgage rate. Approaching that number and getting above 6%, I think would really have some drastic impacts on the housing market. And I don't believe it's in the best interest of the Federal Reserve to have a collapse in the housing market. And so for that very reason, I think they'll start to taper off as rates get up to that level. And so for those reasons, until things change, I'm staying along this stock market and I'm not worried about the headlines or the news cycle or what's going on with the election. What I'm watching is those interest rates and what the Federal Reserve policy is. But even more importantly, what I'm looking forward to is spending next week with all of you guys down at the TSP Fall Workshop. And so until then, this is John Pugliano for the Expert Council wishing you the very best returns. Okay, I agree with that pretty much. I, I'm a little less optimistic about the future of the market if the, if the Democrats take a sizable, uh, majority in the House. If they take it by a very narrow margin, um, you can't really get anything done with a narrow margin in the House. So you're looking at somewhat of a stalemate either way. Because you're not going to have a commanding majority by the Republicans in the House. 
One thing people do not realize, though, expanding your, your lead in the Senate and strong-arming some of these uh, you know, red state Democrats in the Senate, the House already passed a whole bunch of shit. Well, that stuff doesn't all just go away. The Senate can pick it up and run with it if it decides to, if it can get a couple extra votes. So um, that's all good and well. The, the, the concern I have is endless investigations and more and more on this retardism uh, around um, the Russia thing and, and everything else. Because one thing the majority can do effectively uh, in, in the House is open investigations, have hearings and stuff like that. And there's blood in the water there. Um, there's a whole lot of nothing there, but there's a whole lot of blood in the water and anger. And since the Democrats wouldn't really be able to get anything done, it would feed to their base that they're getting something done and kind of set things up for Showdown 2020, and they want the White House back. Uh, on the other side of that, it actually might really help Trump win re-election uh, because they're going to look very obstructionist. They're going to look like they're not doing anything. And every time something's not as good a news as it was, which is kind of what John was alluding to, Trump's just going to go, well, you know, we were doing really great until these people had control of the House. You know, all they want to do is investigate and, 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 and ferment anger and whatever. And so, anyway, that's kind of where I, I think things are going there. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see. Like I said, when I come back, we'll talk about it because then we'll know. And I don't think it's clear. Um, if I was using, if I was the magic eight ball right now, uh, I wouldn't be giving you yes or no answers. I'd be the try again later answer. Uh, it, it's a lot more murky than I think the TV wants you to believe right now. Anyway, so let's talk about something more positive. This comes to me from Dennis. And Dennis says, how do you put a consortium together uh, to make our town, Milheim, PA, a place where people want to live? Kind of hip, kind of cool. How do we create opportunity here? paraphrasing from the 2317 episode about rural towns. Backstory, after listening to you and talking to my taking my walk to freedom from New Jersey to Pennsylvania, I bought a local cafe and I'm now trying to make our little town more of a destination point. Milheim, PA is, uh, Milheim, I guess, is Milheim, PA is just about 30 minutes outside of Penn State, one of the most beautiful fly fishing, almost small farmland valleys around. We have local farm to table craft brewery, an art gallery, an event space, and about eight other local small businesses. Oh, and my cafe, Ingle Bean Coffee House. We are trying to turn the little town of about 900 into a place where people can come and get away for a day, kind of like New Hope, PA. A few of us business and property owners are all on board about making this happen. I'm also at the planning stage of trying to add a gelato bar to our local vineyard wine store, that's next to my cafe. Also about turning my old rock, uh, turning my old rock quarry into a music venue just ten minutes away. Any help or suggestions would be greatly appreciated, Dennis. Well, um, <coughs> it sounds like you're kicking ass already. Um, it, that sounds like a great way to do things, and you've got kind of this. You know, any kind of a college town has a, a large population to draw from for weekends and stuff like that. To me, to really make this work, what a small town has to do, though, is grow. And you have to balance growth. And you don't want a small town to become a big city. <clears throat> the, the good news is the kind of towns you're talking about here, you know, population 900, they're really not going to become big cities. They're just not going to become big cities. So what you need is planned growth. In a lot of ways, this is like the function that Chamber of Commerce is 
are supposed to uh, serve. But Chamber of Commerce usually ends up a bunch of business owners playing grab-ass with each other, trying to talk each other into buying from each other. Uh, and every time you go to a Chamber of Commerce meeting, you kick a table and 12 financial advisors and uh, 16 real estate agents come out from underneath the table. That's, that's generally, you know, they're not as effective as, as they could be. And the larger cities, the good work that the chambers do is generally within committees, and it's more specialized. Like I was a, a big part at one time of the Technology Business Council for the Richard uh, Richardson uh, cha uh, uh, Chamber of Commerce, and and, and we did some good stuff there. But it was more on bringing in big companies and stuff like that, uh, or finding talent pools for those companies to draw from, so that they would be willing to expand things like that. And and that's more of a, a high level that you're not going to do in a small town. So I think the people you're working with already is a great start, the fact that you have that. My concept here would be, you know, how do we take this town of 900 to a town of about 1,500 uh, and, and have some of those people earning income from outside the town so that we now have a net flow of, of economic uh, resources in the form of capital into the town. What this does is it reduces your dependency on out-of-towners that come in for weekends and stuff. It re reduces the, 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 the seasonality cycle uh, of business because there's more business to be done on a daily basis from the people that live there. And, and my feeling is that the number one ways that towns can grow right now is low-cost housing, not cheap housing. Not Section 8 housing. Low cost compared to major markets in the United States and competing with markets like Dallas-Fort Worth, not San Francisco. Because you can have a house that looks really inexpensive compared to San Francisco, but there's a lot more opportunity for a young person in Dallas. And even though our market went up a lot, we are still relatively a value in, in, in the real estate market. So... Looking at ways to either develop housing or rehabilitate housing uh, and bring new people in. One of the ways that I think you can do that, and one of the projects I would take on if I was in a rural community or a small town community and I wanted to, to make a push for this, is I would look for a building somewhere that is not being used. And I would make a, a pitch to the, the city, the county, whatever. What we need to do is turn this into a business center. We need to turn this into a business center, and we need to market it as kind of like a pod for remote workers. And we need to market to companies that are having a difficult time with a talent pool uh, because of expense. So you could now you could be working with West Coast companies. We've talked about how they have a hard time. They pay entry-level programmers better in, in, in San Francisco uh, than they pay a 10-year programmer in Dallas. But that entry-level programmer really can't afford to live there. And one of the problems that companies have with remote workers is a lack of any control or supervision. If you have a place for that worker to go, right, and you have some level of you know, structure there, you might be able to kind of put those two groups together. Uh, or even have whole teams, remote teams, that work out of this business center for this remote client. And then you have a very compelling story. If you come here, you'll actually be working for these people out there, but you'll have small-town America. 
your cost of housing will be lower, uh, you'll have a stronger community, etc. That and I don't know if there's a, I mean another way to like that's not the only way to skin that cat. But that's that's one thing that you could definitely look at. And then all the other things you're doing, like a music venue and stuff, becomes more attractive to that young person. that want, Because the, the, the way to build this is on the generation we've spent the last 10 years beating up on. Well, they spent the last 10 years growing up, and that's the millennials. A lot of millennials that were being beat on you know, 10 years ago were 20 then and they're 30 now. There's a, and, and this is what I talked about earlier this week, too, when I said, you know, millennials shouldn't get offended when somebody basically makes fun of their generation. You're the youngest generation that's doing shit, and you're always stupid when you're young. Well, you're always stupider when you're 20 than when you're 30, unless you have a problem or you fail to learn or you cling to stupidity and ignorance. You generally are a lot more stable, a lot smarter, uh, your values are generally a lot more deep-rooted, and even if you're solid at 20, you're generally more solid at 30. And it's that 25 to 35 demographic, they show up, they put down roots, they have children, children drive communities. And if you have a moderate growth rate to a place like that, you know, do you have areas that can be developed for new housing? How can that housing go in in a very affordable way? How can you offer incentives to the exact type of person that you want to buy that new house? So you can't deny or disparage somebody from buying a house. But you can build a house that you know costs $150,000, but a certain type of person might be able to get it with some kind of incentive program for $120,000. You know, and how do you recruit those people? These are the things you have to ask. Because if you can recruit them in advance, you can match them to the property before you do the incentive. Are there houses in the community that, you know, are, are, are on their last legs and nobody's living in them or uh, they, they soon will have their tenants dying off? How can we incentivize that house to be rehabilitated? And I hate playing politics, but the way that gets sold to the county or the city or whatever is, Look, this place is getting you $200 a year in property taxes. Why don't we offer an incentive that changes that to where you have a reasonable tax revenue off of it, and long-term it more than pays for itself, but let's do something to get a young you know, couple in here to turn this old house into the beautiful thing that it could be, have children and grow our community. And, and, and I think this exact type of thing is going to be done in a lot of communities, and a lot more communities are not going to do it, and they are going to fall off the edge. And some of them will hang on, and some of them will do really well. There will be places where they don't even try, and it's just got enough to hang on, or it's got enough to, to stay something kind of special. There's towns like that, and that do make all their money off of tourist money. But I, I would not want my town to be completely dependent on tourism. And, and I'll tell you why. Many years ago, not many years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, Dorothy and I took one of our trips to Sanibel, Florida. That's when we were living in Arkansas, and we decided to change it up, and we drove. And we drove you know, through a lot of the state highways and stuff instead of all interstate to kind of see some different things. And we drove north to south through Arkansas. I really had never, ever done that before. And everything south of um, I-30, I-40, that corridor there, was... Totally foreign to me. It was mostly farmland. And you could tell it was farmland that was being you know, run mostly by just big machines, and, and nobody was even there. There's just huge fields. 
But every once in a while, we came into some towns on some lakes. And you could tell at one time these were thriving towns. They were thriving little communities. Beautiful lake houses around the lakes and stuff like that. But the towns weren't thriving anymore. Many of the places within them, there were like, there were like an old hardware store that had a tree grown through the roof. The whole, it looked like a, 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 a ghost town. And what you could see in where people were living, very much projects, poverty type situation. Well, what these were, were towns that were built on the back of tourism. And when, you know, the tides of, of life changed enough that the tourism didn't come anymore, the towns died. And so tourism as a piece of a town's revenue is a good thing. Tourism as so much of a piece that the town must depend upon it is another. And the towns that really do well, that get a lot of money from tourism, are the kinds of towns that when someone goes there for a long weekend they leave with a real estate brochure and they think about moving there for the rest of their life, even if they don't. Sanibel, Florida is one of those places. Rio Doso, New Mexico is one of those places. It's just beautiful. Um, and those are you know, expensive places. Rio Doso, less so than Sanibel. Uh, Estes Park, Colorado, very expensive to live, but it's one of those places. So how do you, how do you play that, that card without being the place that people need $600,000 for a three-bedroom house. And small towns can find that niche. How do you create that affordable housing and economic opportunity draw? And, I mean, if it was me, you know, either through a chamber, if you have one, or just through this consortium of businesses, I would be contacting larger employers and saying, What kind of what 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 would you see as ideal for remote workers? We want to build our town that some portion of our growth is people that specifically are remote workers for companies like yours that can't afford or can't find enough of a talent pool in your market because of housing and, and, and urban sprawl and everything else. We want to cater to you. And who exactly do you talk to? I mean, human resources, which is usually not a fun conversation. But, you know, if you take enough, like I said about sales before, the way you double your sales is you double your no's. If you talk to 10 people and they all say no this week, talk to 20 next week. If you talk to 20 and one says we're interested, we'll tell you what we're looking for, we'll start working with you, then talk to 40 the week after that, and you'll have three by then. And how many, how many companies... Do you need playing ball with this to grow a town of 900 people? One's the answer, but you don't want one because if one goes away, two is one, one is none. It's not just about prepping. It's about all things in life. Three is for me, four is even more. Five would keep you alive because now you got something special. you got five companies that are specifically telling you what they're looking for in a talent pool and a, and a resource situation. And each of them wanted to hire, I don't know, 10 people even. That's 50 people. That's 50 jobs. Now, you might say that's not a big deal. 50 people in a town of 900. Now, that, that's, that's a totally different situation, isn't it? That's like 5.5% of the population. 
So you're either at a 5% population growth to fill the jobs, or you're getting good jobs for 5% of the people that are there, or some split. But see, it's bigger than that. Sure, there'll be the guy that, you know, you end up somehow recruiting out of Penn State to do this job for this company, and you matched him up, or, or what have you. Uh, they'll come there alone and set up and look for a girlfriend and whatnot. But they'll equally be, you know, the, the couple, the, the one of them gets the opportunity and they come take it, and the other one comes along for the ride. Now you've got one has become two. Well, if they have a kid or they soon after have a child, then there's a, then you've got new blood. And, and I think when you talk to people about this in your town, there may be a little bit of hesitance. You know, we don't want it to change. Well, you're either growing or declining. In business, in population, in all things. There's no such thing as stasis. And again, if you, if you look at the housing situation, the housing situation in of itself places a cap on growth. So if you control the expansion of housing, you control the population, you're not going to turn into Philadelphia. And you don't want to. You also don't want to turn into a, a bigger town that has a lot of problems like a Reading or an Allentown. Right? Uh, there's some good, and I, I live just north of Allentown. There's some great things about Allentown. There's some really bad areas of Allentown. So you want to manage that growth. And you want to manage that growth by bringing in productive people that are motivated, that are excited about the opportunity that you create. So the way you do that is you create the opportunity and then you find the people that are looking for it. So those are kind of my thoughts on it. I think there's a lot of other things you do. I think you're off to a great start. And I think the more you can do, then the more you can market the town. And, you know, then again, what, you, what you're going to have are people coming there to take jobs, not people coming there just to be there. Um, you know, and, and that starts to create more diversity in your age groups. And that's good because, frankly, old people need young people and young people need old people. So I, I, I think there's, I, I'm excited to see somebody really grab onto this concept and take a run at it. And I think for every town that really, Graps onto this kind of a concept and, and takes a shot at it, you know, for every 10, probably eight of them won't really get very far with it. But the two are exciting. And once you have two, then you have, then you can look at it and it's more like that laboratories of liberty that the states are supposed to be. Well, how'd they do this? The ones that were successful, how did they do this? How did they make this work? What, and, and you know, that's the other thing to look for towns where it's already happened and talk, and, and, and talk to their chamber. And ask them about people that came after the revitalization started. Who are they? Would they be willing to talk to you? And ask them, what made you come? If you want to know how to catch fish, and there's a guy catching fish, go ask him what he's using for bait, and how he's got his line rigged up, and what pattern he's on. And if you, if you emulate that, you'll catch fish. If you just go sit next to him and crowd his spot, if you're not using the, the, the right bait, and the right pattern, and the right rig... You're just annoying, but you're not catching any fish. So it's kind of that total package. I hope that makes sense. Anybody with some ideas on this? I, this is one I'd love a lot of group think on, man. Let's 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 kind of think about it because I think it is, and it's it's a it is a true capitalist success story every time it happens. And it will be no surprise that the majority of the things that actually matter will be done by business owners, entrepreneurs, etc. All right, with that, we've wrapped up another episode. I want to remind you guys 
You can help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. I got two things for you today. Number one, my item of the day for review is an item I've been recommending for almost 10 years. It is the Streamlight Stylus Pro Flashlight. I love this flashlight. Um, again, 10 years is a long time in the world of flashlights to keep recommending the same thing. And the reason is there may be some better lights, but you can buy three of these for the price of one of those, and they ain't that much better. Um, it's My big thing is, too, will you carry it everywhere? This thing is the size of a pen. If you stick it in your pocket and clip it on the inside, kind of like you do a liner lock knife, it will be there. And when it sits kind of in that back pocket, you don't – back side of the pocket, front pocket's where I usually carry it. You don't really notice it. It doesn't poke you when you sit down or anything. So you have it. And since you have it, it's actually there when you need it. It makes it actually a pretty good little self-defense tool if you're familiar with how to use a Kubaton. Uh, it's not super rugged, but it's rugged enough for that, for you know joint controls and things like that. And it's there, and it's always there. And that's why I recommend it, and I have for so long. The other thing is, you guys know, I have reviewed quite a few different products from a company called Anker, uh, A-N-K-E-R. Uh, specifically, uh, their rapid charger, 20, uh, you know, uh, dual USB car port, uh, charger, because it's so much better than the junk that you see in the little bins at the grocery store, store or the, the electronic store, and their power core, uh, backup power systems. Uh, they're just, to me, they're the best thing on the market. And everything they make is good, and they're one of those companies, kind of like E-Tech City. If something's messed up, they're just gonna fix it. They're not even gonna, they're not gonna be like, okay, we'll send it back and we'll look, no. You got a problem? We'll fix it. And I, that's the kind of company I want to recommend. They have going on today, I don't know how long it's going to last, a lightning deal. Uh, all their charging products are, are, are marked down about 30%. So if you've been looking to kind of up your game in that world of backup chargers and stuff like that, Anchor is the company to do business with, and everything's on a 30% off sale right now. I have two posts on the blog about both of these things. You can just go to the survivalpodcast.com and scroll down, and you'll see it. And, of course, this will all go out in the email today. But I don't know how long that lightning sale is going on. I just wanted to mention that. Of course, as always, you join the MSB. You help support us. That's all I'll say about that today. And uh, let's talk about our song of the day today. We're going into election week. We're coming out of Halloween week. Kind of ass clown perfection, isn't it? Maybe that's why. We, is that why they have election day so close to Halloween? Because you know everybody dresses up for Halloween, and then we go elect a bunch of ass clowns, which is kind of you know ironic. Um, but this song's called "Elected" by Alice Cooper, and uh, I'm not a huge fan of the song itself. It's a little bit too much screamy scream for me. Uh, but if you like that music, you'll like the song. But it's actually really a, a, an interesting song. Because uh, he talks about basically, if you get us, if you, he's got a rock star when he released this, right? right? So he's got it made already. But like, basically, I'll have even more money and more and more of everything if I become a, a politician and a political clown and get elected. So it's mocking that a little bit. Now he was actually pretty good at marketing and sales. I mean, Alice Cooper is a marketing machine. He because the persona he markets is not who he is at all. Um, you can just look up some stuff on Alice Cooper. If you want to. You want to really understand how different Alice Cooper is from the mainstream version thereof, the the, the character. Uh, go on YouTube and search Alice Cooper Christian, and and find an interview or two where he talks about his faith. It's pretty pretty telling. Anyway, but he was good at marketing, right? So he basically leaked and and kind of hinted that he was going to run for president. In conjunction with releasing this song, which I'm pretty sure he had no intention of whatsoever. 
Um, but I guess it's a good song to end the week with. It's a good song to go into the the final round of the Ass Clown Circus 2018. And if you think this one's been an Ass Clown Circus, <laughs> wait two more years, guys. You know that, too, though. Two years from now, we'll still be cranking them out here at the Survival Podcast. Farewell, my friends, until a week from today, I guess, a week Tuesday, I'll be back next Tuesday. Uh, we'll have the Veterans Show on Monday uh, of next week, and all through this, this week coming up, uh, we'll have rewinds. And again, if you want to tell me what you want to hear on a rewind, get that to me today, because tomorrow morning I'm going to get up real early. I'm going to crank that crap out, because i got a ton of other stuff to do here on the property to be ready for all y'all coming out to see me. With that, hope you guys have a great Friday and a great weekend. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.